0: Welcome to the UF, medical podcast. In this podcast, we explore current issues in football medicine and player welfare. And last month, we hosted our first medical webinar, kicking off with the topic of sudden cardiac arrest in football. And with over 1,100 registrants, I think it's safe to say that it was a successful first edition. However, that one hour flew past and there's so much more to explore in this topic. And that's why in this podcast, I talk with Harald Jorstad. Uh, Harald, welcome. Can you please briefly introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Thank you so much, Evert, and thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So, as you say, my name is Harald Jørsta. The Norwegian name would be Jørsta, to pronounce it. Uh, I'm originally from Norway, but I've been living in Amsterdam now for more than 20 years, where I work at the uh, uh, now-called Amsterdam University Medical Center and at the Olympic Center at Pedal, with, uh, I think, the most interesting field there is Namely, sports cardiology.
0: Wonderful. So now I know how, on your background, you're you're clinically working with athletes in cardiology, but you're also doing a lot of research around this topic, especially in the elite sports realm. Can you tell us a little bit about the forefronts of the current research? Where, where are we going? What are we looking at when it concerns screening and, and cardiac issues in athletes?
1: Yeah, I think sports cardiology is a quite. Young discipline within cardiology at the intersection of sports and really a multidisciplinary intersection. And I think the field is still so wide open when it comes to research. We have some uh, seminal studies from Italy, uh, London about screening, the use of ECG, echoes when it comes to screening, particularly in football players, European-style football players. But for the rest... Well, the horizon is wide open. There's so much we still need to research. Um, and examples of things that are emerging now is uh, how often should we be repeating screenings? There's not not really a scientific consensus about this. Um, uh, how should we be? Uh, how should we interpret the different components of the screening? Should we be adding stuff? Think of uh, cardiac magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, targeting specific groups to uh, thoroughly screen them or screen them more thoroughly. Or, uh, and I think that's one of the greatest challenges we're facing right now, is uh, uh, genetics and cardiogenetics are becoming commercially available. And as a clinician, I'm regularly confronted with individuals who had their cardiogenetic profiles made by commercial parties. How should you deal with this? What, well, how should we deal with it in practice in someone who's uh, uh, apparently completely healthy, who approaches you with a mutation or polygenic risk score, which you would in clinics as, uh, assess as abnormal? That's a huge challenge. It's also exciting. And uh, my dear friend and colleague Guido Plaza just published a paper about this in, um, in circulation, in endurance athletes, where he saw that uh, higher um, percentiles of uh, polygenetic risk scores when it comes to cardiac diseases is associated with more PVCs and uh, higher ventricular volumes in endurance athletes, which is thought-provoking and really opens a new field in research like should we be thinking about polygenetic risk scores to better target our screenings, could we do Less in more individuals and more in a small number. Well, this is speculative, but I think this is really on the horizon for uh, what is happening in screening and sports cardiology at the moment.
0: That's exciting Exciting to hear. I, I, I picked two things up here. Um, one is you talk about research and endurance athletes, um, which is obviously a little bit different than what we're talking about here football, which is more of an intermittent, you know. Sport acceleration, deceleration, yes, exactly. So, so if you need to translate what we know from endurance athletes or what you know from endurance athletes, maybe to a sport like football, would, would there be any special considerations to be made based on recent evidence or future evidence?
1: I think we're you completely right. I think we have to be very careful in, in translating like the findings in endurance athletes, and then, of course, we're talking about bicyclists, which isn't just endurance but also static loading. So it's, it's both static and dynamic loading of the heart and the, and, and the demands and the adaptation we see. So I think we have to be very careful about this. Uh, also, we need to think about uh, diversity and genetic diversity. Um, a lot of endurance sports, at least in Europe, are still dominated by certain uh, population groups like right? football is very diverse. So the genetic background in football players could be completely and probably is completely different than something that is as highly selected as rowing, for example. And Of course, the number of uh, recreational and elite uh, football players is enormous compared to many of the more niche endurance sports. So I think great care is warranted when extrapolating these findings and we might have to make completely new considerations in football players when it comes to the genetic background
0: so diversity is a is a, a, a key theme of your answer here i i might conclude and absolutely yeah there's a, there's a lot of unknowns when we talk about the diversity of athletes globally uh ethnically uh, demographically is is there something to say about that with current knowledge um yeah i think when Going back to the basics,
1: like how to deal with an athlete that you're screening or an athlete with complaints, uh, 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 sex, biological sex and uh, gen- genetic background, so ethnic background is really important because you need to look at their ECG in a different way. And you need to look at the echoes you make in a with different uh, point of view, depending on ethnic background and a bit, a bit depending on uh, biological sex. You don't expect as much hypertrophy in female athletes as in male athletes. And you wouldn't consider it normal if it goes above 10, 11 millimeters, for example, in a female athlete. While in someone of sub-Saharan descent, you could expect a lot more hypertrophy to be part of uh, uh, the athlete's heart. So really, it goes back to the basics of what we're dealing with on a daily basis. And of course, I think the ethnic diversity is such an enrichment for research projects. Because, it, well, uh, as we all know, generalizability goes up so much more. But it also tells us about the interaction of different genetic factors, epigenetic factors, and sports, which is really the key challenge in sports cardiology. How do sports interact with different kinds of hearts, with different genetic backgrounds? And how do different sports uh, uh, interact with these different, uh, th- these different backgrounds? So I think that's really one of the advantages within football that we have this uh, diversity.
0: That's that's wonderful. But then I would also like to go back to something you said before. There's a lack of consensus on certain things. Now, there are some consensuses out there talking about cardiac screening and what to do with cardiac screening, but they're, they're quite general. Would there then be room to have consensus on sports specific ways to deal with this is there sufficient evidence for that or is it still mostly practice based common knowledge or common sense
1: well I think our, the main screening studies have been the screenings from Italy from uh, London especially a huge uh, New England paper uh, with more than 10,000 uh, football players the group of Sanjay Sharma um, which really uh, gives us a little bit of what the screening actually does and um, in no way are screenings at the moment on a population level cost-effective. But there are arguments to be made that in some groups and some sports, yeah, it could be more cost-effective. Of course, this is not my field of expertise and I'm not one who does these analysis on a daily basis. Um, and I, I think it's important that we realize that every sport is very different. And when dealing with football, the numbers are large uh, if you want to screen a rowing team, it might be four in a boat. So, like going from sport to sport, huge differences. Um, and the central question in most of these screenings boil down to... Can you afford not to do a screening? If something happens, could, can you say, well, we thought about it... And we decided not to do this. And that's a hard question. And I think in very many professional organizations... The choice is no, we can't afford to do nothing at all. And then you have great variability from uh, different organizations. Some American organizations only advise the classic consultation, family history, symptoms, uh, and physical examination. Uh, and others are more aggressive towards uh, yearly ECGs, yearly echoes, for example. But th- there's a spectrum here. And do we know what the ideal screening is? No. Uh, Can we improve the way we're screening at the moment? Probably, but we need solid research to do that.
0: Okay, so based on on current evidence and current research, what we're doing right now is basically the best we have to offer.
1: Uh, Well, at least the best at the cost-effective level. Um, Of course, you could phenotype and genotype everyone, but that would be a fortune. And... Well, most screenings these days include the ECG, the resting ECG, which really we know, we've also written a a, a review about this and we know this from the different papers that you really catch most with your consultation and your ECG and the echocardiogram has uh, some added value, but most of the things you catch are things you catch just speaking like we are right now and uh, and on the resting ECG.
0: Okay. Now I know that here in Amsterdam you also have um, a multidisciplinary team around you working working with all these athletes. So that that maybe is the next step after screening. Something pops up, you need to deal with that. Can you explain a little bit about how you operate here?
1: Yeah, I'd like to even go back a step because when you make the ECG, actually it's worthless if you don't look at it. And it, really the most important part when making an ECG is that you know what you're looking for so the best investment that a sports physician or someone who deals with players is to invest in your own knowledge of the ECG or invest in a network around you that can help you when you're doubting about what you're seeing on this ECG because I don't need to tell you the consequences can be huge you could give someone a negative sports advice based on on a wrong conclusion or you could maybe give someone a positive sports advice while there's this subtle Uh, abnormality on the ECG that you should have investigated further that could have major consequences and our solution to this has really been network medicine and multidisciplinary and I think we've evolved more into the interdisciplinary field right now to bring people together and uh, to evaluate these athletes especially when it's challenging together and we uh, wrote a paper about this published now two years ago in the Mayo uh, Clinic Proceedings and what we see is We get a lot of patients to discuss in a multidisciplinary team. We did that hybrid, so physically in the hospital with people logging in from all over the country and sometimes also the rest of the world. And we see that many of these cases are brought in with a suspicion of pathology. Uh, Some of them have already been given restrictive sports advice. And in the majority, especially those with a suspicion of cardiomyopathy, we deem it to be completely healthy hearts, part of the normal variation, and uh, we take away the diagnosis of pathology. And what I've also noticed in these meetings is it's educational. We look at the ECGs together, we explain what we're seeing, we discuss them. And for everyone from the physiotherapist joining our group, to the sports physicians, to the cardiologists who might not see athletes every day, I think it's a fantastic learning experience. And I, as a sports cardiologist, am learning from them as well. So I think finding each other, getting together, discussing these cases... Uh, uh, ticks so many boxes at once and really improves uh, the level not only of the screening but also of the clinical care. Because sometimes you find something and then you really need a team to know how to deal with this because we might have been more restrictive in the past but these days a lot of cardiac findings and diseases do not constitute an automatic negative sports advice.
0: So going to that, maybe moving away a little bit from the screening um i know you're also uh the the clinician of some football players who've had well some some cardiac negative outcomes in the past are there any clinical pearls that relate specifically to football that you're able to share based on your experiences here in relation to other sports maybe?
1: yeah so we've pioneered a number of football players with ICDs going to the highest level of championships. Uh, We did that thanks to a huge team internationally, uh, which we collaborated with, and I I, I was so lucky as to be able to head these teams, and what we've seen is a lot more is possible when you get together and you cover each other's blind spots. But also, you need a lot of work to get there, a lot of monitoring, lots of testing, lots of just trying out during rehab what happens to this heart that obviously has a serious disease when you have an icd for example and um, but also i think football is a very safe space to try it out because at this level you're always surrounded by uh, medical personnel you have a whole team around you who know what's going on this is completely different from bicycling or mountain climbing or scuba diving for example where the risks are are at a completely different level also for other individuals. So if something happens on the pitch, you won't damage anyone else. So the risks are... uh, The the, the known uh, um, risks are easier to give a sort of stamp or quantification. And it's a safe setting to actually see if someone can return to sports. And yeah, I've been very, very fortunate to work with a number of football players... that wanted to return to sports... I think one of the most important factors we've noticed that we didn't expect in the beginning is the support network of the football player also outside of the pitch, uh, the psychological support, the, the, the family and friends around them. Uh, are they able to support them in the way that they need right now? Because returning to sports with a heart disease is uh, uh, strenuous not only for the heart, but also for the mind and the rest of the system around the football player. I think that, that is one of the things that we really need to look deeper into and really take into account from the first moment we're discussing return to play in someone with uh, cardiac disease who wants to go back on the field.
0: It's interesting that you say that because in in the webinar we had preceding this podcast, uh, Morten Boson told us about his personal experiences with having to resuscitate players and and, and spectators. And he also highlighted the necessity of a personal support network in in dealing with that. So there's there's a
1: lot of parallels. And um, Abby made- absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. I not emphasize enough how important those networks are because if those networks are dysfunctional, uh, you will not be able to return this player to sports, even if they want to. If they don't have, if they have a network that have other interests around them or ha- don't have. Uh, uh, The same objective as the player, it becomes very complicated. You get all these grey zones of risk that you can't really assess anymore. You get incentives for the player to do something that you maybe would not recommend as a medical professional. So not only do they need a support network, but they need a support network with interest aligns in this precisely same direction as the athlete. And first of all, that's safety and health. And return to recreational sports because you can have a great life without engaging in competitive sports as well. And then only comes the level of competitive sports, elite sports, when all the rest
0: is in place. Wonderful. So if I sum this up briefly, basically what we've discussed in the past 15 minutes or so is that screening is an extremely valuable tool. It is still under development, so you know, we we need to keep putting it against recent evidence and see if we can improve it. But despite that, extremely valuable. But it's only one small part of a bigger system of various clinicians and various non-clinicians supporting the player and supporting the medical staff of of football clubs and football teams.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And if I could give one recommendation, it's. Reach out to each other, include the player in your team as well. You're not treating you're not doing something to the player, but with the player. And 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 and, and take into account the surroundings of the player as well. And as you say, it's screening and, and the medical part is only one small part of the whole picture that we never
0: should lose sight of. Thank you very much, Harald. Thank you. It was a pleasure.